The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, three presidents with three different ideas to solve the 1970s energy crisis. As Americans began driving more and more and more, the need for gas was growing faster than our own supply. Next thing you know, we had to turn to the Middle East, which resulted in a whole different set of problems that still cross the president's desk today. The administrations of Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, and Jimmy Carter. How they all tackled the problem with their own creativity and ingenuity. That's coming up on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brun. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. On this episode, we're not talking about just one president, but rather an issue that several presidents have had to deal with, the energy crisis. Author Jay Hakes is uniquely qualified to help us understand the issue. He was the administrator of the U.S. Energy Information Administration during Bill Clinton's time in office and director for research and policy for President Obama's BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill Commission. He also ran the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum for 13 years. He's written a couple of terrific books on the issue of energy, including a new one that we want to get into today titled The Energy Crises, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Hard Choices in the 1970s. Jay, thanks for joining us here on American POTUS. Uh, It's great uh, to be with you and uh, all your listeners who are like me, interested in presidential history. Jay, this is Alan. Great to hear your voice again. I've, I've known Jay for many years. Uh, he served as the director of the Carter Library, as you heard, and I've worked with him at the National Archives. Jay, uh, thank you so much for joining us here in American POTUS. Yeah, we've uh, spent a lot of hours discussing uh, various presidents. and it's, yeah, We have. I'd like to do it again. Excellent. Well, let, let, I really enjoyed your book. Let, let's start with some background. Uh, when President Nixon took office in 1969, what was the energy environment he inherited? What events or developments, let's say, of the past 20 years had set the scene for him? Yeah, I mean, let's go back in kind of a time machine and, and imagine what it was like in uh, 1969. Um if you were a motorist, uh, you would drive into a, a gasoline station. You'd pay about 30 cents a gallon for, uh, for your fuel. Uh, someone would come out and clean your windshield and check your oil, and they'd give you um, S&H green stamps, probably, <laughs> right. uh, that, you, that you could save up. And see, everything, everything seemed hunky-dory. But from the standpoint of people at the White House, they had sort of realized um, for a long time that we faced a dilemma because the consumption of gasoline was going up faster than U.S. production. The the United States was the world's biggest producer of oil, but uh, we were driving more and more and more. And uh, so when Nixon came in, we had uh, a, a quota on imports from foreign oil, which basically meant we didn't allow imports from the Middle East. And uh, we, we we sort of 
didn't realize how bad it was going to get because not only did we produce all this oil in the United States, we had the capability of on short notice upping production. So when the Shah uh, of Iran was uh, overthrown in the early 1950s, um, later restored, and when the Suez Canal broke down, uh, and when the uh, uh, Six-Day War broke out in 1967, we had shortages of oil from the Middle East, and uh, the United States could increase its production and offset a lot of that. So when Nixon came in, his people realized that that those easy days were kind of over and we were going to have to uh, uh, find a new way of doing things and probably eventually start accepting oil from the Middle East. And then that created a whole set of other problems. What what led to the, the famous oil embargo of 73 and what were its effects on the Nixon administration? Well, in the spring of 1973, we uh, ended the embargoes on foreign oil. So all of a sudden, Saudi Arabia became a big supplier to the United States. And uh, the Arab nations realized that they had a new uh, hammer. Uh, uh, sometimes it was called the oil weapon. President Anwar Sadat of Egypt and President uh, uh, King Faisal of Saudi Arabia agreed that it was time to, to move in trying to get back the lands that had been lost in the 1967 war. And so when Egypt attacked, we lined up with Israel, and then the Arab states put in an embargo against the United States and slashed their production by about 25%. So that happened in October of 1973, and that was almost the watershed moment in uh, American history, because for the general public, uh, something that they had taken for granted in the past all of a sudden became something they had to think a lot more about. Mm-hmm. What what measures did Nixon take in response to that growing crisis? Well, he had taken some before the crisis mm-hmm. that actually contributed to uh, the ah. crisis. Um, and uh, before the 1972 elections, he had put in wage and price controls, uh, not as an energy policy, but he thought it would help fight inflation, which would help him politically. They regulated oil more than other parts of the economy. So those price controls kind of uh, kept demand growing and didn't help U.S. production. But when the war hit, one of the things was try to bring peace to the Middle East, which which would help. But he put in the uh, 55 mile an hour speed limit. And he, he, Nixon was really a big fan of that. He uh, he actually favored a, a 50 mile per hour. Oh, my gosh. Per mile. Uh, uh, but uh, the the. Uh, he he got talked into 55, and that lasted for a long time. The Americans actually thought it was a good idea, and the cars did get a lot better mileage. So that was that was one of the big things he did. And then he encouraged states to some people might remember odd even days where, depending on your license plate number, you could uh, get gasoline a, just a certain day. And also the stations closed down at night and pretty much on weekends, which was a terrible blow to the um, to the tourist industry. But it did um, it did save oil. Now, he did one thing that was very counterproductive. And uh, the Congress has to share a lot of responsibility for this. Um, He put in uh, government uh, allocation of oil. 
So the government took over from the oil companies the decisions about what states the oil would go to, what areas it would go to, how much would be released. There were very strict limits on refiners. Uh, the government wanted to make sure that the farmers had uh, tractor fuel uh, uh, and, and that factories didn't have to shut down. But they thought for uh, drivers, it was kind of discretionary. And I argue in the book that this made it a lot worse than it would have been otherwise. I mean, there was a big shortage in the world market. It would have been inconvenient. Uh, uh, drivers would have been upset. But the biggest shortages uh, came in late January of 74 and late uh, 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 January and February of 74. At the end of the month, they had these tremendous backlogs. And one of the reasons is the government allowed uh, the prices, the retail prices to go up at the first of the month to reflect the higher wholesale prices. So if you were a dealer at the end of the month and that gasoline was going to be worth seven cents more a gallon in, in another couple of days, you didn't have a lot of incentive. So there are just a lot of things that got messed up. Hopefully a lot of lessons were learned. Uh, I mean, we uh, the government didn't even calculate the shortage properly. So um, it, it's an interesting time and kind of a lesson of, of maybe how we could make government work better during a crisis if uh, people had better information and made better choices. Now, just stepping back for a second, you said as Nixon came in to office, they already knew that uh, kind of a crisis was brewing due to increased consumption. What was that consumption driven by? Was it merely a factor of a growing economy, more automobiles? What, what was behind that? Well, there's two things to uh, that I would mention specifically, and one is the interstate system. You know, Eisenhower uh, started the interstate in the 50s, but when Nixon came in, a lot of this construction had not been um, uh, been completed. So uh, every year it was getting easier to take longer trips. And then that also happened to be, and, and we forget this, the period when air conditioning went from being a luxury to kind of a necessity. Uh, the, the jump in air conditioning at houses and, and residences uh, just skyrocketed. So for electricity, this um, uh, created a, a, a big surge in demand. Uh, unfortunately, the industry assumed that demand would keep growing at that level, and it didn't once most people had air conditioning. But th th that was kind of a symbol. And, and it, at that time, energy use was growing faster than the economy was growing. Today, it's just the opposite. Energy use grows slower than the economy grows. Yeah. So when Nixon resigned, Ford enters office facing a lot of complex energy issues. Could you outline for us what challenges he faced both here and internationally, and where did energy stand in terms of Ford's overall priorities? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question, Alan, because I, I think that a lot of the Ford period, although it was short, has been overlooked. And so the, the Arab oil embargo ends in March of 1974, and Ford came, uh, came into uh, the presidency in August. So it was pretty close. So when he came in, you look at his major addresses and he's talking about energy. And he, he says, we're going to have a budget freeze. The only area that we won't have a budget freeze is for energy. So uh, it, it was a big deal with him. And uh, he, he toned it down a little bit the following year. 
but uh, he, he would sit for hours with his energy advisors. And fortunately, we have very good notes of those meetings that you can find at the Ford Presidential Library, uh, almost as good as having the tapes like we had, mm-hmm. yeah. Nixon, yeah. Uh, which I've listened to extensively. But but um, so, uh, so he was, if you look at how he was spending his time and what he talked about in his major addresses, energy was right up there as a very high priority. Just like every POTUS, we strive for a positive approval rating too. Please rate and review the podcast on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate all the kind words from our listeners and those that participate in the show. And if you want to know more about today's guest and his terrific book on the 1970s energy crisis, more information is easy to find on AmericanPOTUS.com. When Ford starts taking actions based on his energy agenda, what did he do that you think helped or hurt our long-term energy situation? I think most of his uh, contributions were were positive. He he, uh, he continued um, uh, to support the 55 mile an hour speed limit, which, which included uh, penalties to states that didn't enforce the law. But his biggest accomplishment would be. Uh, what we in energy call the EPCA Act, the Energy Policy and Conservation Act of 1973. And it was controversial at the time and underappreciated at the time, but it did a couple of key things. One is it put in mileage efficiency standards for automobiles, which we had never had before. And that's been an off and on part of American policy. But even today, it's something that we have. We've upgraded it since that time. And it's, you know, when administrations change, there's always one of the first questions is, what are they going to do about automobile efficiency standards? So that that law traces back to Gerald Ford. Uh, the, the, that same act from 1975 created the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So we have hundreds of millions of barrels in storage today. And uh, for instance, when we had the first Iraq war in the 1990s, uh, we had that storage sitting there. So people couldn't jerk us around quite like they could have before. So uh, and then he also uh, that act was viewed as not sufficiently decontrolling oil. But if you look at it closely, it provided the mechanisms that were used by uh, Carter and Reagan later to uh, decontrol oil prices. So I think that that act. deserves more credit. And and Ford had this sort of back and forth dance with the Congress. He had to deal with the Democratic Congress, so he didn't agree with everything. But uh, they agreed to work across party lines and uh, came up with a bill that all of them said, well, it wasn't their first choice, but it was it was better than nothing. Jay, all three of the presidents you discussed had to face the energy crisis, but none of them gave it more attention than Jimmy Carter. So can you outline for us the main components of his energy strategy and how important in the long term was his creation of the Department of Energy? Yeah, I I think uh, I I do this with a lot of presidents. Sometimes you have to divide their presidency into sections because um, they change uh, over the four years. But when he came in, if, if you take um, the Department of Energy, for instance, uh, Gerald Ford had just uh, recommended uh, before he left office something that looks very much like uh, today's Department of Energy. And when Carter came in, 
he uh, he didn't he, he some people said we well, got to bring in the interior department into the energy department and Carter agreed with Ford so that passed relatively quickly and so by the summer of seventy seven we had today's energy department um, I you know you mentioned that I had been the administrator of VIA in the 1990s. But I think that was one of the really valuable parts uh, of the new department because uh, now there's data out that's available to any person in the United States. It's not behind a paywall like it is many places in the world. Uh, and um, so, so the department was created. And then that same year, he tried to get a big energy package passed. And uh, it didn't pass until 1978. Uh, at the, what it included were things like authorization for appliance efficiency standards, which uh, didn't get uh, rulemaking when Carter was president. Uh, big boost to uh, the use of coal. Uh, it created uh, incentives for things like uh, gasohol, which today we call ethanol, incentives for solar, uh, home insulation. Um, he proposed taxes, but those were not accepted by the Congress. So that package, which was a a bundle, Carter had 113 recommendations uh, to Congress, uh, and uh, most of them passed, and and, uh, there was no silver bullet, but there was a lot of silver buckshot. And and I would argue, looking back, the act was successful, much as the 1975 act was successful. And then he comes back in 1979 uh, and 80 with the uh, win, what's called the windfall profits tax. And that's been overlooked because we know that people in Texas and Louisiana and Oklahoma didn't like the windfall profits tax on oil. However, it was used to fund huge investments in energy research and development, including for the oil and gas industry and things that later became uh, hydrological fracking. Uh, that were uh, a, a tremendous boon to the oil industry, but it also invested in photovoltaic uh, cells uh, and a whole host of things uh, during that time. So Carter continued to push for coal. He continued to push for renewable energy. Uh, they were even talking a little bit about climate change during those days. Um, and, and, and Oak Ridge, incidentally, was, was uh, a big part of those discussions. So. Um, so Carter did, and, and he, he talked about it all the way through. He did a lot of televised evening addresses to the nation. Uh, his Crisis of Confidence speech in July of 1979 is one of the most spe- famous speeches he ever gave. So, um, uh, yeah, he, he, he really focused on energy, and uh, he called it the moral equivalent of war, if, if, for those who remember that. He had great legislative success, placed a lot of emphasis on energy, but still during his administration, we had shortages, long lines for gasoline at times. What led in the short term to those shortages and how did he specifically address them? Well, this is one of the areas where I think I've uncovered a lot of new information that's going to cause people who study this to, to reevaluate a little bit. In late 1978, just about the time the first energy package passed, uh, the oil workers in Iran started going on uh, strike in protest against the policies of the Shah of Iran. And so oil production started to plummet. 
And then the Shah actually fled the country in January of 1979. So there was a big loss to the world oil market, somewhat equivalent to what we'd had with the Arab embargo back in 73, 74, uh, that hit, hit the world market. So, you know, most history books will say, uh, well, the problem was the Shah was overthrown and that called an energy shortage and we had gasoline lines here. Well, the problem with that argument is that it's oversimplified because the gasoline lines in the United States came in May and June of 1979, well after the Shah had left Iran. So what explains this is Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia is a mystery, even for historians, because the, the, a lot of the material is classified for a long time. Uh, there's, uh, it's often U.S. policy to not talk about Saudi Arabia that much and keep things from the press. But what you find is when Iran uh, had this r revolution, the Saudis quietly moved in to make up a lot of the production. They didn't announce it at the time because they were kind of cheating on their OPEC quotas. And uh, But then the Arab world was upset with the Camp David peace accords because it didn't solve the Palestinian problem. So Saudi Arabia came under intense pressure to cut back their oil production. And there were very... Uh, fist-pounding, emotional conversations between the Americans and the Saudis behind the scenes that were never reported in the press. And the press didn't wasn't able to follow the ups and downs in Saudi production. So it was actually the cut in Saudi production that led most directly to the gasoline line. And that story hasn't been told. But uh, I, I was able to track down the... Um, the diaries of the uh, American ambassador to Saudi Arabia, John West, the former governor of South Carolina, which are housed at the University of, University of South Carolina. And this story comes out. Uh, and it's one that really hasn't been told before. And I, th I think, it, again, it's another lesson that when we're dealing with these mysterious nations in the Middle East, at least they're mysterious to Americans, uh, we, we've got to develop our expertise and up our game a little bit, understand those countries um, uh, better than we do. I found uh, with all three presidents that they would have meetings with the Saudis and come out of the room thinking they heard one thing and uh, then be totally surprised by what the Saudis did. And when you go back and carefully read the records of the meetings, the Saudis had put in some caveats that we weren't listening closely to. So I, I think that uh, story of those months there in late 79 and early, uh, or excuse me, late 78 and early 79 will, will explain a lot of the mysteries of the, of the Carter administration. I see. Now, Jimmy Carter was a former nuclear engineer in the Navy. What were his views toward nuclear energy? Well, he supported uh, nuclear energy, uh, particularly the light water reactor, which he had worked with Rickover on, on the subs. He, he worked on the Seawolf, which was the, the second one. But uh, the first one, the Nautilus, was, was the, the big success for the Navy that eventually morphed into the civilian nuclear industry. And he was always a supporter of the, uh, of the light water reactor. This is, again, something that's a little confused in history because Carter was under tremendous pressure from environmental organizations to not be pro-nuclear. 
So uh, you have to kind of read between the lines and read his private conversations a little bit. He would sometimes refer to nuclear as a last resort. Uh, I think that uh, reflected more uh, uh, an attempt to pacify the environmental groups who, who tended at that time to be fairly anti-nuclear uh, than his personal views. In fact, in his diary, uh, and incidentally, I had access to the parts of his diary that haven't been published, so I was able to get you know uh, a little bit more information. He, he was a strong backer. Uh, the, the other thing that's confused the picture was the issue of the breeder reactor. And the breeder, if you look at the genesis of the idea in the 1950s and the idea in the 60s was based on the idea that we needed the breeder reactor because there would be a shortage of uranium. And, and the uh, uh, breeder reactor was not a net user of, of uranium. Uh, but uh, there was no shortage of uranium, we found out in the 1970s, and, and therefore, the, and there wasn't likely to be one in the next few decades. So the, the rationale for the breeder got uh, weaker. A lot of utility companies uh, pulled out of partnerships, and Carter sort of act, actively opposed a demonstration project for uh, the breeder, which was going to be located in Oak Ridge. Uh, and so that became a big controversy, and, and we could probably have a whole program about that. But 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 Carter uh, wanted to take the demonstration track uh, uh, plant money and put it into further research because there were many different alternatives to the breeder. You know, some people think we should be using thorium. You know, there there were a lot of options that were still out there. But um, he stepped in after Three Mile Island. And we, we, we didn't order new nuclear plants uh, after Three Mile Island, the Three Mile Island accident, accident. In fact, we'd stopped ordering new plants several years before. But we did complete a lot of plants under construction. I think we completed something like 31 nuclear plants uh, after Three Mile Island. And, and those actually were a big contribution to the grid. And they were actually a big contribution in the 1980s in holding our greenhouse gas emissions down. So that, that, that uh, part of it uh, was, was crucial. But I, I think Carter helped the nuclear industry in one sense. The, the Kemeny Commission, which he brought in to study Three Mile Island, uh, made some really good re uh, 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 recommendations. And the nuclear industry became, to me, a model in energy of where the energy sort of did self-policing. And one of the effects of that was not only greater safety, but uh, if you look at the uh, usage rates of nuclear plants in the 70s, they were down around 55%, which for baseload power is not very good. Today, they're well over 90. And so I think the, the progress that the industry made after Three Mile Island did not bring down costs enough to be competitive versus coal, but it was... Um, it was good enough to take away, I think, concerns that might have existed before about safety issues and also improve the efficient operation of the nuclear plants that we had. Now, I know you see in Carter's administration long-term benefits for our energy sphere. Can you summarize for our listeners what you saw begin in the Carter administration that bore fruit later? Well, here's, here's one way to look at it. Uh, I suggest to everybody that every year they check in with the 
American Association for the Advancement of Science, which publishes a, uh, a bar graph about U.S. expenditures on civilian research and development. And basically, three of the big buckets in research would be space, energy, and health. So pre-Carter, uh, space is getting the bulk of the money. Nixon and Ford both start beefing up uh, uh, energy research, and that bucket includes solar and uh, includes nuclear uh, and solar and wind and these other areas, oil and gas and even coal start getting more uh, research monies. And by the end of the Ford administration, that budget's growing pretty fast. Then under Carter, once he gets the money from the um, uh, windfall profits tax, which we discussed earlier, he put these programs on steroids. So all of a sudden, uh, energy is pretty much cost, caught up with space, uh, which is going down. And it's pretty even with health, which today just overwhelms our, our R&D spending. So if you look at um, energy research and develop budgets in the last couple of quarter years and control for inflation, those are the biggest expenditures on R&D uh, energy that we've ever had before or since. Now, who knows what happens with the infrastructure bill or what might come in the future. But you look back, a lot of the progress that we uh, made in photovoltaic efficiency and cost was made uh, in the later stages of the Carter years. And uh, also the fracking technology uh, goes back to the Carter years. So I, I think if there's one thing that I would emphasize, that that would be it. But um, but Carter was a strong supporter of mileage efficiency standards. Uh, and, uh, you know, another thing, um, uh, home insulation, the insulation of buildings was a trivial factor that no one paid much attention to. Well, in the late 1970s, virtually everybody was in the process of, of insulating their buildings and homes better. Well, that that helps uh, cut the waste uh, of energy. And, and then another thing that may be considered a little more trivial, but everybody today uh, knows that you can turn right on red at most intersections. That was an innovation in the 1970s. Actually, it was an innovation from more under Ford in the 1975 legislation. But uh, today, we can turn right on red. If it hadn't been for the Arab oil embargo, we might still <laughs> have to sit there idling at the intersection. So, <laughs> so th th there are all these little things uh, that, that at the end of the day add up. And, and one of the things I try to po point out, there's a feel failure that these, the 70s were, uh, a feeling that the 70s were kind of a failure. And I hear that argue they were more of a success because we passed a lot of environmental legislation and we ended up cutting our oil imports almost in half. And the reason that doesn't get recognized is half of the cuts um, uh, occurred under Reagan and, uh, and, the, uh, and half the cuts occurred under Carter. So no one has decided who gets the credit. Yet. <laughs> so, so no one brags about it. But, but, but as a nation, we, we cut our oil uh, imports from uh, 8.6 8 million barrels a day, I think, to 4.3 million barrels a day. And, and then, of course, it started creeping back up. But, uh, but we, we did accomplish something there. So I think um, 
it, it's a sign that national policy and and people getting behind something uh, can 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 actually provide benefits. Looking at all three of those presidents, how did they talk to the American people about energy? Well, all of them privately, and this is the advantage of having access to the Nixon tapes and to uh, the transcripts of Ford's meetings and Carter's diaries, would complain that that um, uh, energy was very complex to them personally. And all three of these presidents are very smart. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, um, Gerald Ford is, is a, a graduate of the University of Michigan, conversant on a lot of subjects. Nixon's actually one of the probably smarter presidents we've had. Carter was a nuclear engineer and everybody dealt with him, thought he was smart, but they would always complain privately. You know, this is so complex. I can't understand it. How's the American people going to understand it? So, you know, you do have to simplify a little bit. So, so Nixon called for energy independence and Ford kept the term energy independence. And then Carter changed it to moral declaration of war. Uh, well, you know, Nixon didn't really have a plan on how we were. He, he said we were going to get to zero oil imports by 1980, and he didn't really have a plan to do that. But at least he'd sort of set this metric out there uh, that it was good to reduce imports. So I think they all did the best they could to try to explain it to the American people. And I think, again, uh, as citizens of the United States, we have to realize that um, uh, the president is is going to explain things to us in simpler terms, but we may want to do some more homework um, and and uh, maybe get into the more ditty gritty. Because uh, I always use the phrase I might have even used it earlier today uh, that in energy there's no silver bu- uh, silver bullet, but there's a lot of silver buckshot. So uh, this is a dilemma for presidents, and I think energy. Is, is is a good example of the challenge of being president. How do I take these complex issues and explain them so the American people understand them? Well, to that point, what do you think President Biden can learn from the actions of the three presidents you talk about in your book? Well, I think investing in uh, research and development is a good thing for any president to do. It's somewhat of a hard thing to do because you, you don't get immediate benefits from this research and development. You know, sometimes from the laboratory to a commercial product might take 10 years, maybe longer. So it's great for the country. It's not necessarily good for public, uh, for the, the president. So I, I think that the uh, uh, one idea would be to stress research and development. And then, you know, we have this sort of polarization of some people have never met a government regulation that they like, and other people that get, get kind of slap happy and want to um, regulate everything and not recognize the role of the, of the private market. Uh, and, and so what I would urge uh, Biden and, and everybody is don't just be ironclad for against regulation. Look for the what's the good regulation? Why is this a good regulation? How is it taking into account uh, markets? And I think you get a lot further that way to a good uh, ener- energy policy if you take uh, take that approach. Uh, you know, back in the 70s, they said, well, should we use energy taxes or energy uh, regulations? Economists tend to like taxes. I tell you, in the 1970s, every time Ford or Carter, well, Ford didn't propose taxes, but they still came, had support in the Congress. When a tax proposal came up in the and the Congress, even though it looked like it had support, it would get crushed. So I would say be very, very careful of propo- proposing energy taxes. 
Well, Jay, we've been talking about energy specifically here, but you're you're a presidential junkie, right? You love presidential history. Absolutely. Of the three presidents we've been talking about, Nixon, Ford, and Carter, who would you want in these specific scenarios, okay? Who would you want tutoring your 12-year-old child on political science? Well, I think I'd have to pick Nixon. Richard Nixon was probably the most prepared president we've had in American history. He'd been a member of Congress. He'd been a senator. He'd been Eisenhower's vice president for eight years. He had a very sound grounding in history, and he was very shrewd politically. I might want to, Nixon tended to be a little bit cynical sometimes about politics, and I might want to shield uh, my 12-year-old from some of that. But, but Nixon, with his his historical perspective, he, he would love to sit around and have conversations with John Ehrlichman uh, about big national issues. I, I would urge people uh, who only listen to the Watergate tapes to go back and listen to the other tapes. Uh, they're quite insightful. So I, I, I'd pick Nixon for that. The other two would be good, too. Who would you like to have the assistance of negotiating negotiating the deal on a new electric car? Well, that that would have to be Jimmy Carter. Uh, Jimmy Carter was an electric uh, or a nuclear engineer. Uh, He understood the technical sides of energy very well. Also, I think, I don't know if it was his father or being a farmer or working for Rick Rickover. He was always for cutting costs and and finding if you could do something cheaper. (laughs) And so he would would get me the lowest price, I'm sure. And I'm sure he'd be able to explain uh, the innards of how that car worked if I didn't understand it. Of these three presidents, who would you like to go on an eight-hour car road trip with? Well, I think there, uh, there I'd pick Gerald Ford. In- incidentally, I, I grew up uh, in my early years partly in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So uh, Gerald Ford was actually my congressman for a while. Uh, and, you know, they always say there's you can't find anybody in Washington who doesn't like Jerry Ford. Uh, if you listen to the conversations, he, he's the most gregarious. He's he listens to everybody uh, uh, and uh, can, can relax. Uh, so uh, so if I was going on an eight hour trip, I don't drive eight hours in one day anymore like, like I used to. But uh, I, I think Jerry Ford would be good for that. Well, maybe that's the answer to this next one. So the next scenario, giving the toast at your wedding, which of the three presidents? Well, there I'd have to go back to to Carter. I I have uh I know Carter extremely well. I've spent hours and hours talking with him. Uh, I've introduced him at many events. Uh, he's introduced me at a few events. He knows my wife well. So uh, since he knows me and Anita, uh, I, I think he would certainly be the one. I I've met a number of members of the Nixon and Ford family, uh, their kids and. Uh, whatever, but I, I have I never personally met Gerald Ford or or Richard Nixon, so I, I definitely would go with Carter on that one. That's great, Alan. Jay, really enjoyed this conversation today. Great to catch up with you. Where can our listeners go to learn more about your work and what is next for you? Yeah, thanks for that question. I, I mean, I have a website, jhakes.com, that will keep everybody uh, up to date, uh, and uh, I, I'm you know, uh, on uh, a book tour of sorts, uh, you know, online uh, uh, for my book, Energy Crises, uh, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Tough Choices in the 1970s. So that that gets a lot of my attention. Uh, And then also, I'm about halfway through writing my next book, which will be 
the climate change debate from Eisenhower through Clinton. And I think people will be shocked at how much we were talking about climate change in the 1950s and 60s. Um, like my current book, it involves a lot of time spent in archives, uh, this time not just, uh, at presidential libraries, of course, but uh, also at science archives and uh, some of the pioneer science I've, I've tried to, I'm not writing biographies of them, but I almost feel like I could. So that's, that's what's uh, keeping me busy. I'm looking forward to the post-COVID era where I can get back into the archives, but uh, most of my archival work has, has already been completed. So I'm, uh, I have a head start on anybody else, but I, I think it's an important story right now. I find in, the, in my current book, uh, uh, the tour for my current book, which is, mentions climate change in it, but a lot of the interest in, well, how does this apply to climate change? So I, th I think the next book will uh, be something that uh, people hopefully will look forward to. Yeah, looking forward to that. Definitely would love to have you back on when that's finished. And again, thank you so much for joining us on American POTUS. Uh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review this show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We would like to thank author Jay Hakes for joining us on this episode about the 70s energy crisis. More information on his books, along with all our other terrific experts, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. And while you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter, so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Gerald Ford, quote, We must proceed with our own energy development. We will never again permit any foreign nation to have Uncle Sam over a barrel of oil. <laughs>